Welcome to Design Nonfiction, an exploration of how design transforms in response to emerging technologies. From Tellart, I'm your host, Matt Cottom. Today we present to you David Rose. At the time of the interview, Vice President of Vision Technology at Warby Parker, lecturer and researcher at MIT Media Lab, and the author of the book Enchanted Objects. We met him on a sunny spring afternoon in Newport, Rhode Island. David told us about data, privacy and trust, peripheral vision, and the future of user interfaces. We spoke about data privacy for a while, what it meant for companies and for people. I asked him what he thought made us feel secure about our data. Well, I think a really good strategy for, for the, the companies who are trying to thrive in an environment where people are very wary about these, these questions is an opt-out strategy. Like, I'm impressed, I'm negatively impressed that there aren't more companies that are even having like physical lobotomize buttons on their devices. Because if you give people the opt-out button, the unsubscribe button, all of a sudden you're like, oh, well, actually, no, I like your newsletter. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick with you. But like, if you had, uh, like, if you had on your Apple Nest, if one, I mean, on your um, Google Nest, if one of the menu items was uh, wipe all data from all time from this device, you probably wouldn't be as wary about, you know, how much data they're they're capturing, how long are they retaining it. Uh, are they anonymizing it when they're understanding, you know, how people like you behave? I think it's a good strategy to, to give people the option in a very clear, apparent way to say, I forget, <laughs> you know, forget everything you ever knew about me. Like, because we all seek, I was, I was sort of joking with the um, sign of the cross, but like we all seek absolution. Like every major world religion has a way of saying like, you are forgiven, whether it's for the last day or the last week or in Judaism, like the last year, and like you're written to the book of life and you have selective forgetfulness. Continuing on the topic of data, David told us how he thought one should design future systems to ensure trust, transparency, and user empowerment. Using neural networks tends to be opaque even to the people who are building them. And so I, one of the things that I was a big proponent of, both in our internal tools and also in how we presented the data, was to always show predictions of you know, confidence levels or of anything that we would claim. Like we would say, like we're 90% sure that this is taken outdoors, but we're only 30% sure that it's a, that it's a, that it's a boat. Uh, or that it's taken on the ocean. It might have been a lake. Like, and you do absolutely get a confidence score out of a neural network. Another thing you get out of the neural network are sort of boundary cases, either low scoring positives or high scoring negatives. So you do get the sort of liminal cases of where the thing fails. And I think it's really important for designers to see those boundary cases and also for you to post those boundary, those boundary cases. So for example, like if you're trying to teach a neural network, um, uh, I don't know, let's say what a muffin is. 
<laughs> like you feed it examples. Like the only way you, t you, you train these things is you have positively labeled data and you have negatively labeled data. So you just, you, you feed it lots of like a thousand pictures of a cupcake. And then it comes back with like, what about this one? And it happens to be, or sorry, muffin. What, what about this one? And it happens to have like frosting on it. And you're like, nah, that's, that's kind of muffin-like, but we call those cupcakes. And so you keep continuously uh, training the system in order to make it better and better as it brings these sort of boundary cases back to you. Almost like you, you tell your kid like, go look for these things in the world. And they, they bring one back and they're like, like this? And you're like, well, that's close, <laughs> but but this is how you need to, to correct yourself. And I and I think the best thing that we can do for the sort of future of AI um, is to show what the confidence of the neural net is and enlist your audience in further training, right? So as you're driving the self-driving car around, like it shouldn't say, I have perfect confidence in driving all the way to from Boston to Providence, Rhode Island. Instead, it should be it should say, Eh, you know, this corner up here, many people have had to grab the wheel. So you might want to also <laughs> think about grabbing the wheel. Right now, the Tesla doesn't do that at all. Like, it's just like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Like, it sort of shows you the cars that it sees around you, but it doesn't give you any sense that you should, that it's a good time to grab a wheel, except if you haven't grabbed the wheel in like two or three minutes. But that's a timed thing. It's not based on the condition of the roads and or the or how fast you're driving. So I think you know that's one principle is like expose the confidence level of the neural net, and the other one is um, allow people to like Wikipedia like to source those uh, those boundary cases and help you know train the brains together. I think people really like to nurture things. That's one of the, the joys in parenting, or that's one of the joys in, in, uh, in having an, an animal in your life, <laughs> except for fish, <laughs> is that you have this instruction role. And uh, I feel like that is the new, it's the new design challenge that AI brings, is what is your instructional role in this AI that supposedly is going to help you make decisions? Um, you know, how, how can you know um, when it's unsure and how can you start to feed it examples of, of positive behavior and sort of slap its wrist when, it, when it's close but not exactly right. And you know, I think this is much more important than it was even a couple of years ago when we were, you know, when ditto two years ago was finding brands, finding objects like a pickup truck, finding scenes like outdoor skiing. And now the company is doing things that you would think are the purview of a art director. So it's like we're working with TripAdvisor, which is a big travel company. TripAdvisor has this problem that, that people take pictures of restaurants and of hotels and they upload them to TripAdvisor. So they're overwhelmed with hundreds of photos uh, of every single venue that are new every week. And there's like no, no person can go through and say, this is the right photo for the, for the standard hotel. This is the right photo for friendlies. This is the right photo. So they're relying on our neural networks to say, these are the most compelling photos that are not of people and they're not of porn. <laughs> and, they are, and they do represent the venue and they do represent a diversity of photos. Like there's a close up, there's a medium shot, there's a long shot. Like here's the carousel of photos to show for a restaurant or for a hotel. And so the closer you get to the sort of subjective judgment, I think the more 
the even more training and the more exposure to the to how does the neural net know? Uh, because now the neural net's going to be deciding what's the best outfit to wear, what's the best photo to put in front of someone uh, to get them to buy something based on who that person is and what that person's background is. Um, if you shot like drone footage, it's going to say the most exciting summary of the of the 30 minutes of footage that you shot based on the battery life of today's <laughs> today's drones is this 42 seconds. You know, and it's, so it's going to be cutting video to try to capture the most exciting shots. And I think without your feedback of, of saying you were right about this and you're wrong about this, those things, you know, won't improve. I think that the most important sort of design challenge for the, for the future with, with, with an AI future is this one of sort of shared mental models. Like, how do you design a dashboard, an interface, an interaction that shows you what it sees and how confident it is of what it sees and allows you to train and influence that. I mean, it's the difference in the, I went to this Amazon AI conference a couple weeks ago and Gil Pratt is his name, leads the Toyota Research Center for Autonomous Driving for Toyota. And then somebody from Google, self-driving was there. And their approach to AI is sort of at each end of the spectrum. So Gil at, at Toyota believes that an AI that helps you drive should be like a father teaching his kid how to, how to golf. Like you wrap your arms around them, you sort of, their hand is on the stick and so is, so is your hand on the club. And like you're sort of, you're, you're guiding them and showing them, but then your hands are off, but, but, and you're, you're sort of there as a um, guardian angel. And the head of Google was like, People shouldn't be there. What do you mean steering wheels? We shouldn't have steering wheels in cars. <laughs> like there shouldn't be, you know, we can completely go from, from, you know, autonomous driving mode one, which is just help you not crash into to people that are crossing the road in front of you, <laughs> which is like in, in, in cars today to autonomous driving mode five, which is you get in, you fall asleep and, and you, you're, you arrive at your destination. Um, so it's sort of a different, it's a different way of viewing AI. Like, do you want to be hands off and have all the decisions made for you? Or do you want to have this as, as something that can collaborate and court and corroborate and work with you as, um, a sort of a side-by-side -side tool? And I, I mean, I, I think that, that is the, like, that's the design challenge for almost every job today, whether it's like, a emergency care, uh, you know, person who's who arrives on the scene of a car crash, hopefully not an autonomous car crash, of a car crash, or is it, you know, somebody designing glasses or designing shoes or editing a movie or, you know, all of the tasks that we do today, like you sort of would like an AI to do the first pass or to give you feedback on whether the choice that you just made seemed to be better in their mind than, than, than another choice. But I would hope that we can design these, the AIs to be um, collaborative, not dominating. If you look at mature activities where, where there's some maturity, like cooking, you know, TV dinners came along and, but does everyone eat TV dinners today? Like, no, there's like, there's, there's actually more fetishization and more love and more creative expression that goes into cooking maybe today than, than we've had in a long time, right? So it sort of, it did a zigzag through uh, through an autonomous future, sort of falling in love with automation and falling in love with microwave. And now like we're back to like 
yes, there's still new technology like steam ovens and some other things that are hoping to automate, but I think there's a real acknowledgement of like Blue Apron and lots of other services that you want to leave people, you want people get a tremendous amount of joy in having their hand in some of that, in some of that experience. So it's a yes and. I think we value the, we value seeing errors and seeing imperfections and seeing the craft. And even if we had like the perfect food processor that could julienne the carrots or whatever, like you'd still like to see that there's imperfection there and we'll probably build, start building imperfection into our tools as well. We moved on to talking about interface design. I wanted to know what he thought we could expect in the future and in what direction conventions would and should steer. One of the projects that I've been involved with in the last two years is a, um, a project called City Home, which is trying to make uh, robotic furniture that can make living in a small space not such a huge compromise. So as more and more people move to cities, like people want to live in Singapore and Shanghai and Manhattan for, you know, not for a million dollars for a thousand square foot apartment. <laughs> so uh, the 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 interesting mechanical engineering and electrical engineering and robotics challenge is like, how do you make space hogs disappear, right? So how do you like think about what what constitutes each room of the house and how do you take the space hogs that are like in a bedroom, like a bed, or in a kitchen, like a kitchen island, or in a dining room, like the dining room table, and make those just uh, either collapse or go into a thickened floor or be lifted up almost like in a, on a stage into a thickened ceiling um, or translate out of the way into a thickened wall. Uh, and you know, the fantasy is like holodeck, you know, how, how could you, I mean, you probably have it on your sailboat, right? Like some pretty ingenious thing, ingenious ways to take a pretty small space and be able to like sleep a couple of guys or have a big dinner or, you know, whatever you're doing. Um, and I think what's different about what we're doing versus the sailboat is you're, you're using robotic sort of actuation and computer vision to be able to see what someone's doing in the space or to be even to predict what someone might want to do in the space. And the research has been around, do you want to have an app that transforms the space? Do you want to have a voice of conversational interface where you say, it's time to sleep, you know, pull out my bed now. Um, or do you want to have, uh, you know, dedicated buttons on things that can lift them up and down? Or do you want them just to know what to do? And a fifth option to those, to those four is to be able to gesture at them. And the gesture one is the one that I think is the most interesting and, the, and really predicts the future of how we want to interact with stuff. And I'm a singer and have admired good conductors for decades, like Seiji Ozawa at the Boston Symphony Orchestra, who is so like, so expressive, like in very, in very subtle, subtle movements. Like he can, he can just like, he can bring a choir, like he can take 120 people and just like silence them or like make them sing fortissimo or get them really excited or get them to be like very, very serene. And I just, I like, I think there's so much potential in the dexterity that we already all have here and that we already all appreciate if we, if we make anything or cook or do anything. And so I'm really intrigued with the ability to finally sense 
where people's fingers and arms are and ha and also in sense in a very fine-grained way sort of how how you're moving your hands and so that we can all have the the uh the vocabulary of the of italians and being able to you know <laughs> do whatever the italians how they talk. because i i feel like that will, that will feel like by far the most natural interface I mean, the interfaces will use all modalities, I think, in the future, and there'll probably be an incredible redundancy for all modalities. But if you can trigger calls, uh, switch a call into a text messaging situation, uh, you know, ex amplify things or uh, take them down, like you need to know a lot about contexts. To, so you have to, you might have to gesture to a to a stereo and then and then say, take it up a little bit or turn it up a little bit. Um, so there may be like a two parts to the gesture, but I, I think if anybody is like beginning to go into interaction design, I would say gesture, like just do gesture. <laughs> like, because there's, because the rest of modalities have been so, uh, so developed that, um, and that they're because of computer vision, because of neural networks and because of certain, certain wearables, although I'm really more excited about being able to sense at a distance rather than having to wear like something on your wrist that can do the gesture sensing. Lastly, he told me about peripheral vision and what it meant when crafting information experiences. At the time, I became really interested in this sort of a very particular idea about human perception and cognition, which I learned uh, I, I took an extra year after graduating from college at St. Olaf College at, at, and went to work in the computing department at Oberlin. And I took some cognitive science classes and I learned about this idea called pre-attentive processing. So this is like a part of your reptilian brain that can process things that are, that are a certain type of phenomena that, that your brain can process fast, less than 250 milliseconds, so less than a quarter of a second. Um, and in parallel. So you, there's, there's a certain type of visual phenomena that your brain does almost subconsciously. And, and it's things like the color, a color of a thing, or the pattern of a thing, or whether something is uh, moving in your, in your, and you can perceive it not in your foveal vision, but in your peripheral vision. Uh, and I just thought there's a huge opportunity for computing here because to date, we're just like computing on things that are between this size and this size that require you to look at them. <laughs> and I thought, you know, you're, you're good. You're really good in lots of sports at doing all kinds of work out here and all kinds of work out here and up here and down there. <laughs> and in design, like as if you're, if you're an interior designer, an architect or a lighting designer, you're, you're spending a lot of cycles on, on creating spaces, not just a design that's this big, or painters, whether you walk up to a painting and you feel like your whole body is relating to the painting because it's it's larger than this. <laughs> so I thought there's an opportunity here to design a product that is primarily functioning in your peripheral vision. And that was the real genesis of like, well, okay, so what would that product be? Like maybe it's a big needle, like a big needle that shifts from, you know, that shifts angles. Or maybe it's like a light pattern on the on the wall, like a in theater you have something called a gobo, which is like a screen that you shine a light through, and you can change the the, par the pattern of a of a gobo to make it like more complex or more simple or more structured or less structured. So I thought, oh, maybe it's a gobo light pattern that that 
is something that you don't have to look at, but you but you see out of the corner of your, your vision. And maybe that could be tied to web information that people care about attending to throughout the day. So take, take something that's online, like when the next bus is coming or what your diabetes blood sugar levels are or how many steps you're friends are, have walked or you know, how pissed your wife is or like any, like any of those things that could be sensed and, and put that in somebody's peripheral vision um, in a way that, that they can monitor throughout the day. And so where we got to um, in terms of product design was we designed a pixel. Like it's a single pixel browser that just, it's frosted glass, it's sort of a squished sphere and it has tricolor LEDs inside and a wireless chip. So you could say, the channel that I want to monitor is stock market or what the weather's going to be or what the wind speed is. So if I know if it's, there's enough wind to go sailing or what the, what the tides are if you're, or wave heights for surfers or um, whether your garden needs watering or whether the fish are biting or anything you'd sort of want to monitor throughout the day. And so we just put it on this little orb and people would put it on their shelf or on their mantle and they would, they would love, the, I mean, what we're surprised about in terms of people's reaction was how much people adored the glanceability. Like that wasn't a term I came up with, but as, as people talked about it, they, we, we asked them like, well, where do you put this and how often do you look at it? And people said, I look at it tens of times a day. Like, not like any sort of website we had ever seen where people would go like once a day or maybe once a week to a website. People are saying, I look at this thing tens of times a day and I, it, I can read it without my glasses on. And, and the third thing they said, which was the sort of shocker, was it absolutely changes my behavior. Like the knowing what my mother's blood sugar is helps her take better care of her diabetes helps me take better care of her as she's trying to take care of her diabetes. Or knowing how many steps I've walked and having all of my family know that too, totally changes how much I, how much I walk. Or um, knowing if I'm about to drive into a traffic jam on, the, on my way to work, which a lot of people do, you know, they, like, they get into the car and then they're like, oh, I wonder, I, I'm gonna tune into the radio to see what the traffic's, what traffic is going on my way to work. Oh, I'm about to drive into a traffic jam. Like they're not gonna drive home and hang out for another hour. But if they have that information before they left, then they wouldn't drive into a traffic jam. So that was sort of the big aha is that this sort of um, pervasive data equals persuasion. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can access our whole library of video interviews at designnonfiction.org. There you can subscribe to our mailing list and make sure you never miss a new release. Follow us on Instagram at tellart. Design Nonfiction started as a road trip visiting our design and technology friends around the world. We wanted to explore with them how design is changing in the 21st century and what the future might hold. The conversation continues with you, so please get in touch with your thoughts and questions. Design Nonfiction is independently funded and produced by Tellar. Thanks to our whole team and to Luca on production, Maya on research, Reese and Jack on cameras, Leah, Ilsa, and Lucas in post-production. Special thanks to Superposition for our graphics and you guys for our theme music. I'm Matt Cottom. Thanks for listening.